I've often said that it's the, the hope of every generation that the generation to follow uh, is just has it a little more together than, than we do. And I, I think we're proving that that's what's happening. You know, we've had some kids come up front to leave their money and they've got lost along the way. And Charlie took his binoculars with him so he could find his way back. So they're figuring it out. Blessed to have such smart kids. If you, when you get the newspaper, like to go first of all to the puzzles, then this is your sermon. Because we are going to be looking at a puzzle in Scripture. One that's kind of a monumental task for us to unpack because this discussion has been going on at least since uh, the early 200s when a guy named Tertullian in his writing said, hmm, I don't know what to do with this puzzle. And so it might be a little brash for us to think that in 20 minutes we're going to unresolve this 2,000-year-old puzzle, but let's go ahead and see if we can take a look at what we can do with it. John writes in John 1.8, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And then John will write in chapter 3, verse 9, Those who have been born of God do not sin, because God's seed abides in them. They cannot sin because they have been born of God. And so what we're going to do is we're going to try and untangle this puzzle a little bit to wonder what the Holy Spirit is trying to communicate for John and what uh, John is calling us into as Christians. Since we're not going to fully unpack everything this morning, I want to make sure you've got the scriptural tools and resources to continue to dig yourself. There's going to be three sections of John that are going to be important for uh, this scripture. These verses are all in your bulletin notes as well. 1 John 1, 5 and following 1 John 2, 8 and following 1 John 5, 13 and following. John, in the text that we have read and later again in 5.18, will give us the impression that it is impossible to sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has either seen him or known him. Those who have been born of God do not sin because God's seed abides in them. They cannot sin because they have been born of God. We know that anyone born of God does not sin, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him him. And as I read those scripture verses, I am not surprised that no one said amen. Because those scripture verses often make us feel anywhere between uncomfortable to fearful. Have you ever walked into a home and seen any of these verses cross-stitched on something somebody hung on a wall? Have you ever been looking for a Hallmark card with biblical inspiration on it and found any of these scripture verses on the front of them? No, these scripture verses make us uncomfortable. And imagine if I preached this passage saying that if you sinned this week, you are a child of the devil. Think that might be an uncomfortable sermon? I mean, think back to your week. Did you sin in anger at your heart towards a friend, a coworker, a family member? And then I look at you and I call you a child of the devil. Did you this week covet something that your neighbor has? Remember, this Black Friday not too long ago. Children of the devil. This week, were you jealous of someone else, of their success? I mean, are we to read these texts and to wonder and to be troubled? Are we children of the devil? Because that's what John seems to be indicating. 
And then, of course, we're confused because John has already established that Christians do sin, that sin is a reality in the Christian life. He said that if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Or John will later say, if you see your brother or sister committing what is not a mortal sin, so then, brothers and sisters, it seems to be they can sin. So what are we to make all of this? Maybe John's just setting us up for a lose-lose situation. Maybe John's just saying, if you say you don't sin, well, you're off base. And then if you do say you do sin, they say, well, then you're off base. Is that what John's doing? Just making us feel like there's no way out of this puzzle? Well, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to help to find what I believe to be a viable understanding of this text. But to do that, we need to be willing to be careful Bible students and pay a little closer attention that we might normally do. And the first thing I think we need to do is to set this in the context of John's larger purpose in the entire letter. We've talked about this over and over again, but I want to just re-remind you that this is a congregation where there has been some sort of dissension, possibly, most likely, some sort of a split's happened. John says, some have gone out from us. John now is writing those Christians who remain to encourage them that they are, in fact, in the truth. And he's wanting to give them confidence because it seems like they're not sure because these guys over here are saying this, this, and this, and we don't know if we're on track. And John's whole purpose has been to remind them, to encourage them, to make them confident that indeed they do have relationship with the larger church and that indeed they do have relationship with the Father and with the Son and the Spirit. And so John has been emphasizing that they are where they need to be. If you were to look at your, your Bible in 1 John 2, 13 through 14, you'd find these repeated phrases about how you have conquered the evil one, about how you are strong, about how you have known him. Or, or as we looked at last week, that you have been anointed by the Holy One and that you do in fact know the truth, that in 2.20 and 2.21. I mean, John is reaffirming confidence in them. And then we get to this section where, once again, John wants them to be assured and to be confident of the status and the relationship they have because of God. And so John will write, See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this. When he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. So everything for John is anchored in their identity and status as children of God. If you remember the story of the prodigal son, uh, the older son, when he comes to find that there's a party for the younger son, he refuses to go in. And the father goes out and he asks the son about it. And the younger, the older son says, For all these years I've been working like a slave for you. And I have never disobeyed your command. But the father, in, in disappointment, it sounds like, says, Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. That's what sonship means. That's what it means to be someone's child is whatever they own, whatever resources they have, that that's offered to their children. And so what John is reminding us is that the kind of the father who says, everything that I have is yours and I will always be with you, that that's the kind of a relationship John says that we have with the father. 
We'll always be with him and all that he has is ours. That's our status. And John, when he speaks of the love of the Father, he speaks of this love that the Father has given. And the language used here is kind of unusual. We find it in the language of the disciples when they come out of the temple and they say, see what large stones, and they're gawking at the stones of the temple. Now John uses that language to speak about the love of God. It's as if we stand back and we say, how great is the love of God that we just gawk at it, that it's so tremendous. And God's love is displayed in what fashion? It is displayed in the fact that we are called children of God, for that is what we are. We know that there is love that God has poured out on all mankind. John reminds us of that in 2.2, where he speaks of Jesus as the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Christ's gift on the cross was a gift for all and it was an expression of the love of God. But what John is talking about here is a very unique expression, an exclusive expression of God's love that is only being shown the process of being called children of God. So how is it that one can know if they're a child of God? John 1.12 says, But all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave power to become children of God. And then in John 3, we have this discussion about being born from above, being born of the Father. 1 John 2.9 talks about those who are being born of Him. And so children of God are those who have done something with the exclusive love of God, where He calls them children of God. And John wants them to know before they get into this section what their status is. And status is important. Uh, I have a, a friend named Tom who is a Canadian citizen and moved to Nashville 20, year, uh, 20 years ago, and he's been living there this whole time. And he was at a sporting event, and I know I've told some of you this story before, but he was at a sporting event, and as he was leaving the sporting event, he had gone with somebody in a wheelchair, so he left at the, at the eighth inning so he could go and he could pick up this person in the wheelchair. And as he's going to leave the sporting event, there's a police officer who's directing everyone to the right. But Tom needs to go to the left because that's where the passenger pickup is for those with disability. So the police officer is doing this, and Tom's doing this. Eventually, after two or three of those interchanges, Tom says, I'm going to just go over here, the few feet over here, and I'm going to pull in, and I'm going to explain why I needed to go left. Well, the problem was that because of the size of the event, that this person there was a federal officer. And Tom, who was a Canadian citizen, is now at risk of being deported because he has been given a ticket by a federal officer. Tom, in addition to getting an immigration lawyer and all those sorts of things, emails every Canadian that he knows who's living in the States is saying, you need to get your citizenship now. Why does status matter? Because if you violate a federal crime in the United States, yes, you can be put into prison, but they cannot deport you. But if you are a Canadian doing the exact same crime, you can now be deported. See, what John is about to tell us is grounded in the fact that we need to remember that as children of God, we have certain rights and privileges that are not extended to those who are not children of God. John has already given us some examples of that. As God's children, he tells us in chapter 1, verse 9, if we, John is not saying if anyone in the world confesses, if they're not yet children of God, John is saying this is what children of God do when they sin. If we, children of God, 
confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So John will say in chapter 2, verse 1, If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Does everyone in the world have the advocate on behalf of the Father to say his sins need to be forgiven? John is saying this is exclusive to those who are children of God. Again, Christ died for all, so all have opportunity to have these rights and privileges. But those who have not believed in his name... Those who have not known him, those who have not been born of him, do not have these rights and privileges because they have a different status and a different standing before God. So you think about going to the hospital, and the door says, family admission only. What does that mean? That means if you're not a family member and you try to go into that room, they're going to say, hey, hey, you can't come in here because this is only for family. John has been telling us about certain rights and privileges that are offered to family, to children of God. And he's emphasized that is what we are. And so what we're going to do is we're going to dig in a little bit to the Greek language. And, and whenever possible, we avoid doing this. But sometimes we have to go to this place where we look at the language that's being used. Because we find this word for sin is hamartia, and it's used constantly throughout John. But John will use this word that we will be cleansed from all unrighteousness, and the word there is adikia. Okay. That word's only used one other time in John, and so we would find that in 1 John 5.17. Again, I think speaking of God's children, all wrongdoing, adika, is sin. But there is sin that is not mortal. Now, some people will talk about that there is a specific sin that John's talking about. That there's this sin, if you do this sin, it's not mortal. But if you do this other sin, that this is a mortal sin. What I think John is talking about is the status of the one who commits the sin. Here he used the same language. We can be forgiven of what? Adika, unrighteousness. And here if one sins, that is unrighteousness. But that sin is not mortal. Why is it not mortal for Christians to sin? Because if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. The sins that we commit as Christians can be forgiven because we have an advocate with the Father. But if you are outside of relationship with the Father, if you are not yet a child of God, the sins you commit are all mortal sins. They will cost you your life because you are standing outside of a status and a relationship with God. So when one of a children of a child of God sins, it's considered a certain type of sin, a adika, a wrongdoing. And those sins, of course, can be forgiven through confession, and therefore they are not mortal. But then John will say in 1 John 3, 4, everyone who commits sin, using the same language of sin, he now says is guilty of lawlessness, anomia. Sin is lawlessness. So what is meant by this concept of lawlessness? The first thing that we can say is possibly he's talking about violating or breaking a law. Any action that goes against the law can be considered a violation of law. Paul loves to use adika in this way, not adika, sorry, anomia, against the law, breaking of the law. And Paul will talk about what happens when we break the law, but John has never used the word law in 1 John. And so why is John now talking about breaking the law? There is a second possibility that it's just simply disregarding the law. To live as though there is no law. To live life without 
law. So here's the difference. In the first instance, it could be like driving 85 in an 80 zone. You are violating the law, and you're breaking the law. But the other is more like some, the government goes in and somebody says, I reject the government's ability to create and enforce laws over me, an anarchist. Who says, there is no law, and there is no one who can tell me what to do. See, I think that what we find in this text is that Anomi is not referring to somebody who drives 80 and an 85, but somebody who just completely disregards all of God's laws, all of God's instructions, and they live as though there is no law. Now, again, we're not going to unpack all this just simply because of time, but you have in your bulletins, you have the scripture verses where you find this word anomia in the New Testament. For example, in Matthew, Matthew uses it four times, and three of the four is speaking about end-time events, and it's talking about one who is in rebellion to God. Paul, often when he talks about it, uses it about people who before they became Christians, they were lawless. And so it seems to me that when we look at this word lawless, what we're looking at is a form of hostility or even revolt against God. Now, as we think of sin in this way, I think what John is saying is that children of the devil, which we find that language here, can commit lawlessness against God because they disregard God's law. They are anarchists. Uh, we find antichrists living in this realm and in this world. But children of God cannot commit lawlessness against God. They can break God's law, but they cannot live as though there is no God because they are children of God. So it has very little to do with the actual sin, but it's the status of the one who does it. Now, I knew I'm going to have to illustrate this, so we're going to do a couple of illustrations, and hopefully by the end of it, all these blank stares might make a little sense to us, okay? Um, so here's the first uh, example. If a Christian steals, he has committed a sin that's known as an act of unrighteousness. And as a child of God, that sin is resolved in a unique way, through confession by means of the advocate of Jesus Christ. But if a child of the devil steals... He has committed a sin known as an act of lawlessness. And how that sin is resolved as a, as a child of the devil means that that person will not come to God with their sin. They disregard God's law. And so both are doing the same sin, but it's handled and it's treated very differently. I think what John is saying is that a child of God cannot commit this kind of sin. It's impossible because they are children. Here's an an illustration that you will find to be very, very far-fetched as I get into it. Imagine my wife, as lovely and as wonderful as she is, goes to our bank account and takes all of our money. And then she gets in our car and she drives away with it and I never see her again. Mm, and I am angry. And so I get into my car, no, I hop on my bike and I drive down to the police station. And I say, I want my wife fined... Because she stole all our money. And here's what the police officer will say. What your wife did was wrong, but it was not illegal. Because why? As my wife, she has a legal right to everything we co-own. Status matters. What, what John is saying is, as a child of God, you can do what is wrong. But you cannot do what is rebellious against God. Because you have status as a child of God. 
Even think about things that go missing in the house. There's different legal ramifications if a child took something that belongs to you, to the household, and someone who doesn't. See, John is saying, essentially, it matters the status of the one who does this. If my neighbor went to my bank and took all of my money, and if my neighbor stole my car and I went to the bank and I said, I want this person to be charged for what they did illegally, the police officers say, let's do it. It was wrong and it was illegal because they don't have a status that allows them to do that. See, what has brought us grief and worry and consternation is a text that John says should bring us confidence and assurance that we cannot commit these kinds of sins. Because why? We are children of God. Now, I want to clarify one thing before we finish. Does this mean that a child of God cannot then rebel against God to the point that they become a child of the devil? Clearly they can because John has just told us in chapter 2 what? There are some that went out from us and they are no longer a part of us. And in fact, I think John is talking about those people who are committing these types of sins. So yes, it is possible to turn your back on God. Yes, it is possible to disregard God's law. But as long as you remain a child of God, it is possible that you can do wrong in breaking God's law. But that will not be a mortal sin for us as Christians because we are God's children. But if we live in rebellion to God, and if we live outside of God's plans and God's purposes, then we will commit sins of which there is a mortal consequence. So I think that the question that we are to ask coming out of this text is, what's my status before God? I mean, if I am not yet a child of God, I have not yet believed in his name, I have not yet confessed him, I have not yet been born again, then maybe this morning is an opportunity to become a child of God, to see what great love the Father has for us that he calls us children of God. And as a child of God, if you have sinned this week, the concern is not that now you're a child of the devil, that you're jumping back and forth from statuses, but you need to confess that sin because we have an advocate and because Christ is faithful and just. And so as you enter into this week... And as you live this week, it's very important to remind yourself, if you are a child of God, that you are a child of God. And that if you are not a child of God, that God's offering rights and benefits exclusive to those who accept his love. And so if this is a morning, you need to make a choice about your status. Uh, you'll be invited to do that. While we sing this next song, uh, some of our, our elders will be in the back. Uh, some different folks will be back there. I'll be back there. If you want somebody to pray with you, if you want to talk about what your status looks like, I'd just find someone during that song. But, but here's a word of blessing for those of us who are indeed children of God. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And again, another benefit of the children of God is that we go knowing we have the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. If you need to respond in any way, I invite you to do that while we stand and sing this next song together. There's a fountain free, there's for you.